This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Only one place to start, and that is, of course, with the debrief of last night's Champions League final. It is Bayern Munich, Mm -hmm. who are kings of Europe once again for the sixth time. The most deserving team I can think of for quite some time. The most dominant team, I think, statistically in Champions League history, Chris. European Cup history, yeah. And, I mean, when you look at some of the results, when you pour back through it, and I know it was not the best final. I know that it was a nervy performance by both teams and it was edgy. It wasn't as theatrical, as dramatic, as exciting as as the quarterfinals and semifinals of this Lisbon showpiece had been. But when you look at the results that Bayern Munich have racked up across the piece against the teams that they've put away and put to the sword, Barcelona, Chelsea, Tottenham, Lyon in the semifinals, it's a a demolition job. It it, it really is. I mean, we congratulate Bayern Munich. As you rightly point out, it wasn't the spectacle that I think all of us hoped for last night. No, No less intriguing. You know, I thought PSG similar in that semi-final against Lyon. PSG had their chances specifically and especially in that first half. Kylian Mbappe with a guilt-edged opportunity. Mm. Plum, eight yards out, right foot, weaker of his two. I mean, he's, he's, he's two-footed. He's a bit like Mason Greenwood in that regard. You would have expected better straight at Manuel Neuer, who for me was just underlining what an incredible goalkeeper he is. He makes himself so big. He stopped Neymar just before that big chance from Mbappe. But yeah, Bayern, you look through the results, Rob. 11 games in this season's Champions League. 11 wins. No draws. Every single game they have won. They've scored 43 goals doing it. That's at an average of just shy of four goals per game, for goodness sake. Eight against Barca. They hit three and four against, okay, a young Chelsea side, but a Chelsea side that is still a big club in Europe. They hit seven at Spurs, lest we forget. Six in Red Star Belgrade over in Serbia. They beat, so, uh, they beat Spurs 10-3. 10-3. On two league games. Yeah. I mean... The two groups, the uh, stage games, should I say, at five-two on aggregate over their two group stage games against Olympiacos, nine-nil against Red Red Star Belgrade, sorry, seven-one uh, against Chelsea, eight-two in that one-off against Barca, three-nil against Lyon, and then of course beating PSG by a goal to nil. And statistically, you're absolutely spot on. The most dominant European Cup winners in history. You cannot knock what Bayern Munich did. Yes, it wasn't the prettiest last night. Yes, PSG had their chances, but. When it mattered most, Kingsley Coleman, who, former PSG uh, graduate, uh, an academy player, he was at the club at age eight. He was, in a lot of ways, the victim of PSG's new ownership, new model of attracting the world's brightest talents and biggest names from around all corners of the globe. He moved on. It was Juventus he would go to. Then, latterly, of course, Bayern Munich. And it just happened to be him who popped up last night with the only goal of the game. We congratulate Bayern Munich because over the piece, I think they did deserve it. For PSG, their weight goes on, similarly to Man City in that regard. And Mm. I think there will be a bit of a churn. Certainly, Thomas Tuchel, does he stay in charge? I think he might go the way of Mauricio Pochettino did when he lost the Champions League final last season. I think he will move on. Thiago Silva, the captain, we know he's moving on. And then the likes of Mbappe and Neymar, I think COVID-19 will, I guess, stop them from moving on, certainly this summer. I think they'll be back to one, maybe one final bite at the cherry in all of this. And mm. Whether it's Max Allegri, whether it's Mauricio Pochettino, I think they will have a new boss come next season. It was a classic Neymar final performance in a way it was. it was a lot of pouting a lot of tears at the end 
a lot of his you know usual tricks and flicks, but but no end product. It was emotional. It's what it was, and and we said it. The seven one, the infamous seven one, Germany seven, Brazil one. He wasn't he wasn't on the pitch that day, but we spoke about it last week. David Luiz, Marcelo, a lot of those Brazilians, as the goals were flying in, they got ever more emotional. And it was the same last night when the goal went in. And I'd love to hear from our listeners on this last night. I just thought Neymar became that much more desperate. He, he became that little bit more selfish in possession. He was making bad decisions. He got a little emotional when Bayern opened the scoring. And, and I watched it with a few friends and we were all saying the same thing. It's just calm it down. Good players, there's a serenity, there's a tranquility. When they go, go behind great players, the very best players, they rise to the occasion. Right, I'm going to go and make things happen. And, and last night... Bit of panic setting. Mbappe as well. I thought he was pretty poor on the night. I, I thought uh, PSG's best player, and I'd love to hear anyone's thoughts on this. I thought Ander Herrera. I thought in actual fact he was the best player mm. on the park in that opening 45 minutes. I think if that shot that he hit hadn't been deflected, I think that might have gone in. Well, well there was, he had a great strike from way out. He also the little reverse ball into Angel Di Maria on his weaker right foot that he skied. Real good opportunity. He was the one, was Herrera, who set up. He pulled the ball back for Mbappe for that guilt-edged opportunity from eight yards out. He was all action, was Herrera last night. He was exactly the player that I think Thomas Tuchel asked of his midfield three, Paredes and Marquinhos, just to disrupt the Bayern Munich flow. And, you know, tactically... PSG in that opening 45 minutes got it pretty spot on they had opportunities they didn't take them and then one moment of real magic I think it was Kimmich with a cross at the back post uh, Kerrer uh, the German right back just got sucked in uh, he came inside and, and there was of course Kingsley Coleman at the back post free header and he dispatched it with aplomb so one big chance for Bayern they took it I know Robert Lewandowski hit the post he made a chance out of absolutely nothing the first touch was gorgeous in the first half but one big chance Bayern took it and in the end, that was the difference. And Bayern, of course, dethroning the, the last year's champions, Liverpool. Is it safe to say that they are the best team in Europe now? Bayern. No, no, oh, no questions asked. No question, no question, Rob. I mean, you can only judge them on the teams that they beat and the record. Eleven games in the Champions League, eleven victories. They cantered domestic success in the Bundesliga. Throw in the German Cup as well. And you know the other stat that really blows my mind. It's not even been commented on today. On the bench for Bayern last night, Benjamin Pavard and Lucas Hernandez. Starting fullbacks for France, the World Cup winners. They start every game for Didier Deschamps. And yet in this Bayern Munich team, they're only good enough for the bench. It's Joshua Kimmich, the, the midfielder who's been reverted to this right-back role, which he, he does it with great, you know, great distinction. And then you've got the breakthrough star. Alfonso Davies. Alfonso Davies. So Lucas he, he didn't have the best he didn't, night. I, I wasn't impressed with him at all. I thought it was interesting tactically. Thomas Tuchel, and again, he did a great job last night. He allowed Alfonso Davies' oceans of space to gallop into. What he did was he just dropped back deep because Davies is someone that really flourishes with space in behind. He allowed him to have the ball. He was a little naive for me, the left back last night, but he is still a young boy. Today, of course, he's not, he's not looking back on that. He's celebrating the fact that he's a European champion in Bayern. Well done to them. It is amazing when you think that that final was 85 days late. 80, was that? Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was originally scheduled for Ataturk Stadium yeah. on the 30th of May. And it took place obviously oh. in the Stadium of Light 85 days later. And I said the FA Cup final was weird. I also thought, you know, you can kind of, 
in the knockout games leading up to it, it there was a, it wasn't normal, but it wasn't as noticeable. For a final, I always miss, you know, you, you just notice it that much yeah, more. because the tension uh, permeates and down. It, it, it was just odd seeing them walk around that empty stadium at the end. And, and, and their emotions were, were just as they would have been if there were 80,000 baying fans. I think maybe not quite as heightened as that, but there was as much grief from the PSG players, particularly Neymar, and as much jubilation as you would expect from a Champions League winning team in Bayern Munich. But uh, you just hope that that will never reoccur. Let's let's hope that fans, uh, again, we say it, the fans, we fans, and I include us in that, we're the lifeblood of sport. You know, fans back in stadiums, whilst it has been normalised somewhat with the canned noise, and it is amazing how quickly we've just kind of focused in on the spectacle as opposed to the fans. Yeah, we've got to get back to normal. And I know certainly locally, I think there was an announcement over the weekend, 15th of September, over here in the UAE and, and in Dubai specifically, we're going to start hopefully to see any sporting events, any entertainment events, some fans getting back into venues and stadiums and, and sporting kind of uh, theatres around this particular Emirate. And let's hope, I think the UK with the Premier League, I think they're working to an early October. I think... The plan is Man United Spurs, which kicks off, I think, early October at Old Trafford. For limited capacity? Limited capacity, first and foremost, yes, absolutely, to get fans back in the stadium, because you're absolutely right. You know, Champions League this time next year, or not quite this time next year, in 10 months from now, a Champions League showpiece final. We want to see fans there. Of course, what the Champions League will look like moving forward is the interesting thing. And I know we spoke about it quite at length last week, Rob, but Alexander Seferin, the UEFA president, has come out to say that they did like the little mini tournament set up over in Lisbon and, they, and that they may actually look into its feasibility moving forward, which is... I always feel like I'm not sure that it can work in, in, the, in, the, conf, on the, in the constricts of a normal season. Because don't forget, you need that that time, don't you? Mm-hmm. Which was afforded, given the fact that everything was postponed yeah. and that it didn't clash with anything else. So don't forget, as well now, that we'd be already into a new season. So when would they do it? Is obviously a big question to ask. And when would it? When would they be able to do it where it wouldn't clash with a, a Euros or a or yeah, an fair. Olympics or a World Cup or whatever? Um, but I do feel like the final traditionally is always very isolated. It's a very sort of, it's far later. I think the semifinals typically conclude in early May. And then you, April, wait, you, you wait all the way through until the 30th of May or there or thereabouts to play the final. And I do feel like that d- does kill the momentum somewhat. And there is that, that there is that momentum, there is that narrative that you get that that kind of tension and, and drama that is injected with a standalone tournament I like wonder the one we then, just witnessed. On that on that basis then, Rob, I wonder if it's a bit of a halfway house because I popped up a poll and there was loads of people that go back to me and a lot of people still championing the, the, the two legs, the fact that there's a little bit more tactical acumen, they like the away goals, etc. I wonder then if UEFA, maybe just maybe with that in mind, take it to a last four. So four teams fly into one city, one country, and you have one-off semi-finals on the Tuesday and the Wednesday in that particular city or country, mm-hmm. and then the final is then played on the Sunday. I wonder if that's the way where you still get your two legs in the last 16, you still get your two legs in the quarterfinals, and then come semi-finals and final, it's packaged into a five, six-day, 40... Well, it'd be packaged into a week. You fly the teams in, they do all their media stuff, on the Monday, you get a bit of excitement there. Tuesday, Wednesday, and in you know that what location. You, you absolutely. I know they sell their tickets out anyway. 
but you you get so many fans, hopeful fans, booking trips. Now I'm talking about normal circumstances here, yeah. but say, I don't know, say Real Madrid make the last four. All those Real Madrid fans are going to buy, try and get tickets for the final on the assumption that their team is going to make it through. And they're also going to book trips which will involve staying mm -hmm. for that duration of time. Mm -hmm. So it would become like a mini international tournament. A little. Maybe that's an idea. 4-0-0-1, let me know on that. And that, there's not much thought has gone into that. But I just wonder if that's the, the kind of halfway solution to, mm. to placate the purists or the traditionalists who like the two-legged format, but equally tap into this, I guess, newfound... It's not so much newfound interest in the Champions League, but there is no doubt, and it could just be me and my observations, but the, the Champions League over the last few weeks, couple of weeks, it's all that we've been discussing from a footballing standpoint. I guess that's natural because of the mini-tournament kind of setup. But I wonder, it could be the well, way yeah, to do look, it. I think that more and more the Champions League is being recognised as delivering the best team in Europe. And I know that sort of that's a very obvious statement to make, but I'm not so sure that that would have rung true 15, 20, 25 years ago. I think it's a bit like the Ryder Cup in golf. It's assumed a greater importance as other clubs, particularly these clubs like Man City, PSG, have prioritised it. It's always been very important to a club like Real Madrid, but I think now it, it is the champion of champions. Do you, do you know what I mean, well, though? Yeah, well, I think it's overshadowing it. the domestic leagues yeah. even more than it used to, I think. Well, Juve... If you asked any UV fans, and I know we have one or two listen to this show, Champions League, if you ask them now, next season, what do you want to win? UV fans would say Champions League. Man City fans would say Champions League. PSG would say Champions League. I think if you ask Man U fans, a league title. Get back to the top of their domestic league. For Liverpool fans, retain their Premier League title, I think. Chelsea, Premier oh, League. No, but Liverpool could win a seventh European yeah, but, Cup. Well, again, I'm not a Liverpool fan. Despite the fact that I'm accused often of being a closet red, I'm not. 4 0 0 1 to Liverpool fans. I actually think, I know they've got the monkey off the back, but I still think retaining the Premier League, if you had to choose one for Liverpool fans, I think they would choose that next season over the European Cup. I think you're, you're right to say it's increased importance for, for a lot more clubs, but ultimately, likes of Inter Milan, for example, I think they want to win Serie A. Mm. You know, I think AC Milan would want to win Syria ah, to get back to domestic, the top dogs so in it's, domestic. Yeah, to a degree, it's circumstantial. Yeah. Hannes has been in touch with us. Hannes enjoyed last night's final. He said just one goal in the final, yet I'll remember it for a long time as a genuinely good match. Ultimately, I think it's very ironic how PSG spent 400 million on Mbappe and Neymar, yet they can let Coman go for free. At the end of this massive long season, I feel Coutinho was the winner at the end. Love how he and Perisic, both on loan, won a Champions League. Yeah, and amazing that Liverpool uh, fans rejoicing last night as well because the, the weird quirk and again it's mental this Barcelona have to end up paying Liverpool some cash due to the fact that Philip Coutinho what did he do? He won a Champions League and in the clause in that contract crazy. That is crazy An extra 5 million It didn't stipulate that he needed to win it with Barcelona He is a Champions League winner which means Barca have to pay out even more money to Liverpool Football Club and it is amazing that that Philip Coutinho 142 million give or take Sent on loan. It, it's just sent on loan, and and also a little bit of a cameo role at Bayern yeah, Munich. I mean, it's once it's, again. It's it's just bonkers. It's 142 million you spent on that football player, and there he is on loan at another club. I mean, he's not complaining today. He's a European Cup winner, whether he's on loan or not. But that just that kind of underlines. That's a little microcosm as to what is going wrong at FC Barcelona. And speaking and, of FC Barcelona, yeah, reports tonight saying that. 
they've essentially told Luis Suarez to sling his hook. A man who's third in the all-time Barcelona goal-scoring list, I think he is. He's been told, apparently, reports out of Spain, Ronald Koeman has said that he has surplus to requirements and that they're trying to negotiate a termination of contract one year early for Luis Suarez, who's 33 now. Yeah, I don't... I, it's mental. I'm not sure he's the root cause of all their, their ills, but um, he is probably on the wane. And a little bit. A player who on. always relied on that, that extra yard of pace... I know that's a cliche, but Suarez was a classic. He would dart Just behind a terrier, the line. wasn't he? He was some perpetual motion. Luis Suarez never stood still, always looking to close down the centre halves, always looking to close down the full backs, you know, always willing, a willing runner. Another cliche in behind as well. But Ronald Koeman, and I'm trying to think, did Koeman, I think Koeman may well have had Luis Suarez at Ajax, you know. I think he was boss at Ajax before Suarez moved to Liverpool. Back in oh, 2010, 11. A bit earlier than that, I thought. I'll double check. But I wonder if there's maybe. Well, maybe Torres a, left Liverpool in 09, I think. So he joined January of 09. I think he might have done Yeah, that. he did. And Andy yeah. Carroll as well. So it was 09. So I'll double check that. But Koeman, it wouldn't surprise me if Koeman was his boss at Ajax. Again, reports out of Spain tonight that he is surplus to requirements, which uh, means that they've got a pretty big hole to fill Barcelona. We'll talk uh, a little bit briefly on other sports if we can. How about a little update on the live sport that we've got going on at the moment? It is, of course, uh, day four. four of the third test between England and Pakistan. England racking up that mammoth first innings total of 583 for eight declared. Pakistan following on, having made 273 despite a century from Azhar Ali. And they have reached what, Chris? 58 for one in their second innings, Rob. So they still trail by 252. Let's be frank, it's damage limitation time. They are not going to win this third test. Absolutely no chance of that. Maybe with the weather, they can hold on for a draw, perhaps. Sounds awful to say hold on for a draw. I don't know if they'll be doing their weather dance, the Pakistanis, but uh, England will win this series. Pakistan have had the hoodoo over England for the past decade or so. They've enjoyed coming up against England, but it does indeed look as if England will get over the line. 252 runs Pakistan require. They've got nine wickets remaining. James Anderson is seeking a bit of history, becoming only the third man to reach 600 test wickets. He's two away from that. So I think England will be celebrating. I think James Anderson, come the end of day five tomorrow, will also be celebrating. And England will take another big win. Do you know it will be if they do secure this victory over the course of the next day and a half in the series? I want to ask you very quickly as well about uh, the weekend's boxing. Dillian White taking on Alexander Povetkin. Dillian White jostling for a shot, a title shot with either Anthony Joshua or Tyson Fury. Very outspoken on yeah. that particular shot that he has been so so frequently on social media, but he needed to take care of a real journeyman in Alexander Povetkin, a very dangerous fighter as well, someone that Anthony Joshua had had initial problems with, but then dispatched yeah. in the seventh round in their big fight at Wembley. And, uh, a man who's we, only been beaten twice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Klitschko exactly. and Joshua. Uh, Klitschko and Joshua. So he's only lost to the very best, and it was Dillian White's chance to really prove his credentials as a number one challenger to either Fury or Joshua and it didn't go according to plan. Well, uh, the old maxim, I think it was Mike Tyson that said it, one punch, right, can change everything in boxing, not just the heavyweight division, but Dillian White, no love lost between Povetkin and White. White looked as good as I've seen him conditionally and physically in a long time. Lost a bit of weight, looked really up for it, 
boxed beautifully for the first four rounds, had knocked Povetkin down not once but twice, was dancing, was keeping it all tight. Incidentally, he was patient. With no crowd there, you can really, even the oh, yeah. jabs, you can feel the thwack oh. of a heavyweight punch. It's... And some of those body punches that Dillian White landed in those opening four rounds, you could, you were like wincing a little. He was playing it perfect, you know, perfectly, tactically, beautifully. He was being patient, he was being calm, and he was, for one of, one of a better word, he was schooling Povetkin a little bit in his opening four rounds. And then the power and the beauty of boxing opens himself up a little bit. Povetkin slides to the left. In comes the huge uppercut with the left. Dillian White, good night. He was down. I mean, that, yeah, that was one of the most violent oh, knockouts I've seen. That in a will long win knockout of the year. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Yeah. Dillian White was sparkle. Quite was rare over. to see a, a clean uppercut knock someone out in one punch. Oh, it was a it was a textbook punch from Alexander Povetkin. The way yeah. he celebrated it as well, he knew it was on the money, oh, as they say. I mean, it was over. They didn't even need to no. count. It was absolutely over. Dillian White was out cold, and he was blasé when he'd come round to, to giving a, a post-fight interview just to say, I'll get the rematch, I'll take care of him. Yeah, just got caught. I mean, for me, it's disaster for him. He's 32. He, it was really, he'd reached a point in his career where he really needed to take care of someone that, that, who is an ageing fighter who he should have beaten. And you just, even though, yes, one punch changes everything, for Dillian White specifically, I'm not sure I see an easy route back for him after that. He's He'll started, get his rematch. Yeah, he will. That will take another couple of months. That will end up being an end-of-year fight. But then he's losing his place in the queue to various other. Kubrat Pulev, who's, who's Anthony Joshua's mandatory challenger. Then maybe this, this fight Alexander between Joshua Lusik. and Fury might happen. I just feel like Dillian White is, is, is relegated outside. He's very much on the periphery now of that title shot picture. Well, Alexander Povetkin's left uppercut in his match against Dillian White in Boxing's Fight Camp, organised by... Eddie Hearn and his cronies in Eddie Hearn's back garden, yeah. by all accounts, which so is a bizarre. crazy setup, but it is a heck of a venue, I must yeah. say. They've done a great job with it. That wasn't the only earth shattering blow that was struck over the weekend because Dustin Johnson, I mean, this is, this is the most dominant performance by an individual that I can recall for a very, very long time. Unbelievable is what it is, Rob. And you messaged me. You were on a stakey with your other half. And yet there you were messaging me about <laughs> Dustin Johnson's second round <laughs> for a to see. That was not lost yeah. on me. I did show yeah, the yeah. missus. Look at Robbie. Keeping, keeping an eye. It's 11 o'clock at night. And he's, what, midway through his second round. And you're 11 holes in. He was 11 under. He shot a 60 did Dustin Johnson but he was actually well one man went one better on round number two but of course it isn't a sprint it's a marathon in golf it's four rounds 67 60 64 he finished with a blemish free 63 yesterday 30 under par he won this one over at TPC Boston by 11 shots for goodness sake that is just stupid it's ridiculous and fair play to DJ because we often give him a bit of a tough time on this show for his lack of exuberance off the course. But yeah, Rob, but you just, cannot poo-poo that. You know, no, you certainly cannot. And once again, he's put himself in absolute pole position to win the FedEx Cup. He has, I think it's his second tournament victory in a short space of time. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's his 23rd, 22nd, 22nd tournament victory on the PGA Tour. It just does make me wonder a little bit about his major record yeah. uh, because, you know, he was in contention at the PGA Championship and kind of fluffed his lines there. You know, he, he is a bit suspect when it comes to majors. I get that, but pff, 
Rob, forget his majors. You can only judge him on what he did this weekend. 30 under. I was crunching the numbers on this. His 30 under score was just one off the lowest ever over four rounds in PGA Tour history. That is held. Good quiz question. This Ernie Els, the big easy, who set it at Kapalua in 2003. 31 under. 31 under. Wow. In 2003. And Justin Thomas, who got to 31 under in the Sony Open back in 2017. So two men have got to 31 under. Yeah. DG's got to 30. And to give you an example of exactly how ridiculous that was, because it's all very well and good when you get to 30 and a lot of the field are at 20, 22, 24. Harris English came second on 19 under. But you look at further down the board, People like Tommy Fleetwood, eight under. Rory McIlroy, two under. Tiger Woods, six under. I mean, they're playing a different tournament (laughs) to Dustin Johnson. They're labouring away, making pars and the occasional birdie. He he was 11 under through 11 holes of his second round. He, he, He basically balked. He choked a chance to shoot something like a 57. And actually, I was watching it. I was <laughs> during oh my, my weekend. God, Rob. I was tuned in to the Golf TV app and I was watching his bid to break 60. Uh, Scotty Scheffler, the rookie who Fard was praising a little earlier on, one of our listeners, Fard, was very impressed with what he saw from Scotty Scheffler, who'd shot 59 earlier that day. Dustin Johnson was going to romp past that score. He was 11 under through 11 holes. He needed one birdie to shoot 59 in his final seven holes. He needed two birdies to obviously get to 58, three birdies to get to 57. Remind us, a lot of non-golfing fans out there, is 58 the low? Jim Furyk? I think 58 is the low. I think it's Jim. Jim Furyk, yeah. It's big Jim. So no one has ever got to 57. No one's got to 57. Oh. And DJ didn't even break. I mean, when he did roll in that putt for a 60, people were, were calling it the most disappointing 60 ever shot. I mean, it's a 60, for goodness sake. It's 11 under par. It's an absurd round of golf, but it could have been so much more. I mean, the way he was playing, but his putter went cold at just the his wrong putter time. putter went cold. It really did, yeah. It's a bit I was like mine at the weekend. Yeah, 10-footers just weren't dropping for him like they were. Three Prior footers to that, weren't but, dropping uh, for me, Rob. Yeah, there we go. That's it. Just se- just seven feet between you and <laughs> Dustin Johnson. That's all it is, Chris. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that pretty much brings us to an end for this evening's show. But congratulations to Dustin Johnson. Also, we've got to congratulate one of our own, JP, Justin Parsons. He coaches Harris English, who came God, second. Does he really? Yeah, so he's obviously doing great, great work out there on Sea Island in Georgia. And uh, we hope to catch up with JP sometime in the near future to talk a little bit of golf and we'll, I guess, keep an eye on the FedEx Cup playoffs. But, um, yeah. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.